Hello, it's Beth Kempton, author of Freedom Seeker and founder of Do What You Love. Welcome to the Freedom Seeker Chronicles. If you're new here, you can find out more about me and my work at bethkempton.com. The Freedom Seeker Chronicles is a place for brave stories, real inspiration, actionable advice, and great conversations. So many of us build lives that end up trapping us, chasing the kind of success that doesn't actually make us happy, until one day we eventually realize that enough is enough. We want to do things our way. We want to manifest our own happiness. We want to escape, make our own rules, and fly free. Because deep down we know it's in flying free that we fulfill our true potential and we really come alive. The Freedom Seeker Chronicles podcast is a regular dose of escape elixir to reignite that desire and light the way. I define freedom as the willingness and ability to choose your path and live life as your true self. In this podcast, the stories will inspire that willingness and in my book, Freedom Seeker, you'll find all the tools you need for that ability. The rest is up to you. If you haven't yet read my book, you can get it from Amazon, Barnes & Noble and all good independent bookstores. It's the perfect companion to this podcast. And if you've read it and you're here for more inspiring stories, welcome friend, you're in for a treat. So let's dive in. Today, I'd like you to come and join me at the kitchen table with Lisa Moncrief, a woman who's inspired me in so many ways the past few years. Lisa and I have worked together for some of that time, and she is a hugely positive, creative person who happens to be the sister of my sister-in-law and is married to the talented man who built the little beach out of dreams that you may have read about in my book, Freedom Seeker. Lisa is also a doting mum to Rosie, a little girl born with an incurable, life-limiting muscle disorder, Lisa writes an inspiring blog and is practicing life coaching to help families of disabled children find freedom, positivity and happiness. She also climbs mountains and runs marathons to raise lots of money for charity. Lisa and her husband Ian have been on a real soul-searching journey over the past three years as they discovered their daughter's illness, rearranged their entire lives to give her the very best support they could and found their own way through it all. At times, it has been really tough But three years in, they can clearly see the incredible gifts that Rosie has brought to them. We talk about motherhood, mountains, and the meaning of life. Settle in for a very special chat. It's great to have you here, Lisa. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Today's show is all about family life and how to find a way to feel free when your home circumstances are challenging. So I want to talk about life with your daughter, Rosie, who is just gorgeous, but was also born with an incurable life-limiting muscle disorder, which has had a real impact on your life. And we want to talk about the ways that she's impacted you, you know, good and challenging, um, because I know that your life is quite different to um, before Rosie. But first, can you set the scene of what your life was like before you had children? What kind of things did you do? How did you feel your weekends? You and your husband, Ian, what kind of stuff did you get up to that filled your days? God, that's taking me back a long time now. (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember those days now. Uh, Let me have a think. So uh, I think we just got married. Um, uh, We'd been together for about five years and 
we were just you know excited I think we both had a bit of money Ian had his own business and and I was um kind of just just working sort of the usual nine to five Monday to Friday and then weekends it was all about the weekends and seeing friends and going out and I enjoyed wine and (laughs) just (laughs) playing and like just just traveling around the country and seeing different friends at different times and it was just it was just a lot of fun it was really good um and I think uh, quite soon after we um we got married we wanted children quite quickly and so um and so we sort of started to talk about it and, and put those wheels in motion um and were obviously thrilled when we discovered that Rosie was going to be on the scene yeah so, yeah and Tell us about um tell us about that. Like when you realised that you were pregnant and there was gonna be a little baby in your life, how did you feel? Oh, it was just it was just amazing. I think my sister was pregnant at the time as well, so she she was about six months kind of gone. And so it was just really exciting that we could start sharing a few of these things together and like I knew our children would be grown up together and similar ages and that's kind of what I'd wanted. Mm. Um and I just remember just feeling absolutely like thrilled that you know you sometimes you don't know if you can get pregnant when you know before you start trying so I think that's quite a big like sort of hurdle in the first place and then obviously getting through those early those early weeks is also quite you know can be quite daunting and you don't know what to expect but you just get on with it and you don't really know what you're doing because it's just for the first time it's happening so you just try and your best to keep yourself healthy and you know get yeah just just kind of keep your little baby safe, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, yeah. I know from knowing you personally, I know that you are quite the planner. <laughs> and I wonder, do you, do you have any kind of specific ideas about what family life would be like and what you'd like to do together and how things would be different when there were three of you instead of two of you? I think sort of growing up, like my sister and I were always really encouraged to try new new things so every like every night of the week it would be brownies or it would be you know we did gymnastics we went to dance classes we went to we I learned to play the cello you know it was just things like that that we were encouraged to try and explore different things to see if there was anything that we really enjoyed and then would focus on more or you know we were just kind of left our own devices as to you know mum and dad were quite supportive really to say what what do you want to do and you know let's let's have a go (laughs) so um I felt quite lucky in that kind of sense and so I imagined I used to I used to love dancing and so ballroom dancing was my was my thing when I was a kid I don't do so much of it now but back then I, I used to love it and uh, I think it was probably the the tutus and the skirts and the shoes and the stilettos when you were young <laughs> it was probably more that than the actual dancing itself but and I think definitely for when I knew when I found out we were going to have a girl Ian and I found out and then we asked them to write it down on a little envelope that we could open on our wedding anniversary. Um, and we were like, you know, so we're having a little girl. And I think in my head it was, you know, we sh- I can take her to dance classes and I can, you know, we can do this together and we can, like, I love crafts and um, kind of scrapbooking. So I imagine us like sort of sitting down and doing these little projects together and just kind of, I suppose, like I, I feel very blessed to have had such a, a happy upbringing. And I felt like that would be a good model to kind of take forward with Rosie and kind of do do what I did. Mm. <laughs> it seemed to have worked all right for me. So I thought that would that would work. 
Well, I know that you do do all that you can with Rosie trying new stuff and she always seems to be just so happy and, you know, for for what she's gone through, I'm always completely amazed by her attitude, even though she's still so young, just three. Um, but let's just talk a little bit about Rosie and about, you know, when she was born and how you found out that, you know, there was there were things that didn't work properly with her body and what impact that was going to have on your on your life. Okay, so the pregnancy itself was absolutely fine. There was never any indication that there was anything wrong. I mean, looking back now, when I think about some of the questions, so like the midwife would say, you know, oh, you, you know, you've got good movement. And I didn't know what that really meant. So I'd be like, well, I can feel her moving. So yeah, <laughs> like, and that was the only thing looking back that I can kind of say, maybe she didn't move as much as she probably should have been, but I I didn't know because I'd never been pregnant before. Um, and so she was due in early March, um, but just wasn't showing any signs of <laughs> coming any time, any time in the in the days ahead. So um, I was booked in for an induction about two weeks later, which I think is sort of the final point that, that you know they'll allow you to get to before you have to be induced. Um, and that was it. So I was I was booked in and and waited for I had a couple of extra weeks of freedom even though I was extra large and <laughs> around the streets and <laughs> trying to just, you know everybody was at work so I was trying to fill my days and not think about the birth and um yeah and then the day came and it was just you know obviously your your birthing plan the the lovely water birth and all that kind of stuff that never happened um <laughs> so I kind of opted for anything that was going oh yeah <laughs> so, I know that feeling <laughs> plans what plans out the window <laughs> yeah forget about a plan it's always like yeah yeah as a planner if the plan doesn't go to plan that's a stressful thing <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah we uh so I was induced and um you know it wasn't a particularly bad labor I don't think um I think it probably could have gone worse but um certainly she uh, she wasn't showing any signs of, of kind of making her own way out. And I think after about 24 hours, I think um, the midwives were just saying that it was failure to progress and um, she was getting a bit distressed. And so they kind of said, we need to take you for a C-section, um, which we did. Um, and that was and that was fine and kind of came out the other side and everything seemed absolutely fine. You know, went to the ward where you've got all these other screaming kids and mothers, which is just what you need. <laughs> <laughs> 24 hours of you know kind of probably the worst 24 hours of your life and uh, um and then yeah and then that was it so the first kind of couple of days we were trying to establish breastfeeding and I wasn't quite sure really as to what I was doing and the nurses would try and help and I'd kind of be like yeah I think we can get it and I felt quite confident that by going home that we would work it out together and that it was actually just being in quite a stressful situation with all these other kids and family and mothers and you weren't sleeping and you know it's quite it was quite a big you know quite a big ward of with a lot going on so I just thought when we're at home when we're all relaxed and settled and calm it'll be fine um and so about two days after the birth I went home and so and for about 24 hours she was just she was sleeping and I, I thought I had the best baby in the world because she was she just really didn't cry that much and she she was just sleeping and just very calm and I thought oh I'm dream I'm absolute dream um 
and then the following day, the midwife came around just to do the usual checks as they do, um, and they weighed her, and she'd lost over 10% of her body weight. Um, so, sorry, of her birth weight. Um, and so immediately they were like, you've got to go straight back in. Um, you know, she's she's losing too much weight. Um, and actually, like, looking back now, I think, yeah, she, I, I, you know, I don't know how often a baby feeds. You know, you just think you're going to be naturally guided by your baby and that, you know, the baby starts to cry and that's it. You know, yeah. you, you don't ever think at the time like I what am I what am I doing <laughs> you know the baby needs to feed every hour on the hour you know you just don't think that you just think we're out the other side and like let's just kind of be guided by you know by the baby um but obviously Rosie wasn't quite guiding us in the way that we <laughs> we needed to keep her alive so we went back into hospital um and tried to just establish uh, breastfeeding um she was she went into the uh NICU ward um, and she had the uh, nasogastric tube put, put down and we were kind of feeding her through the tube directly into her stomach just to, you know, try and get a, a weight up and um, get her feeding and and everything kind of. We, I think we were there for about a week and we just needed to get Rosie onto full feeds from a bottle for 24 hour for a 24 hour period. And then we would be able to go home. So during that week, we just spent like <laughs> about. I don't know, probably hundreds of pounds trying to get all these different bottles and different teats and fast flow and, you know, all this kind of stuff, you know, mm. things. Oh, I don't know. Is it colic? Well, I don't even know what it is these days, you know. So yeah. we're getting all these bottles and trying all these different things. And um, and eventually we found kind of one bottle that she seemed to, you know, kind of take to. OK. And really, you know, we're talking about 50 mils of milk and she was taking about an hour for it to go in but it was going in so we just kind of went she's just a bit slow and it's fine we can manage it it's no problem um and so after about a week we were sent home and we were only home again for another couple of days before the midwife came around did her usual checks and by that point we'd shown her some videos of of how feeding time had gone because it was just it was evident that there was something not quite right because she would just cry and be she'd get really irate and go really red and she'd be like hands would be like kind of oh I don't know she'd be like not even grasping just like clenching at nothing to be like this is just awful you know mm. and we were just like what what you know and the video I look back and I think god we we were force feeding her because we didn't know and all we cared about was just trying to get milk into her we didn't kind of think about what if there was something else going on we just we you know we just forced it really and so it's painful to look back at those videos because she's telling us she's telling us that there's something wrong and we didn't listen that's but quite why, hard. why would you know why would you know it's not what you expect is it so no no it's painful to watch though now so obviously in the end you found out that um she it was a it's a problem with her muscles isn't it that's affected how she can how how she is in the world, how she can talk or otherwise, you know, smiling and moving and all sorts of things that you don't really think about that you use your muscles for, coughing and all those kind of things. Yeah, absolutely everything. So it wasn't long before when we showed the um, the midwife these um, the videos, she said, "I think I'm going to need a second opinion." <laughs> she rang the office and you know, I'll come back to you. And it was a bit of to and fro and. and um, and it wasn't long. It was a couple of hours before they said that we need to to go back into hospital. But this time it was to go back into the Bristol Children's Hospital, which is kind of the more the more central. Had you know, 
better better facilities I guess um for this kind of thing um and and the the doctors would always refer to her as hypertonic so she was very kind of weak muscle tone and a bit floppy and and it it was just it started from then really so we were kind of three weeks in to having a new baby we'd already spent half of it in hospital to some you know degree the you know whatever whatever that was um the rest of the time just being fraught at home <laughs> because things yeah. weren't working there either I guess you um, weren't sleeping much either probably not not sleeping terribly well but not even understanding the seriousness of what everything so although we weren't sleeping you know we we didn't expect to sleep anyway with a new baby so I guess it was probably just normal and actually mm. we had more sleep because she was in hospital we weren't allowed to stay with her so mm. actually for the first week <laughs> it was quite <laughs> a blessing to actually get final sleep um, but certainly when we went into Bristol Children's Hospital, that was the first time that they, they did a, a video fluoroscopy um, to check her, her swallowing. And it was the first time they said she's got an unsafe swallow. And it was sort of when when kind of when they did the video, they could just see it lingering around the back of the throat, like sort of any of the milk, the liquid that they gave her at the time. And so they declared her nil by mouth and pretty much from that was three years ago. And yeah, it's um she's not really had any tastes or any liquids or anything since so that's been quite tough it's been quite tough um, I'm, I guess there's the of course the emotional impact of that of of having to support her through that and see how stressful it is and also the logistical challenges of what that means for you guys you know having to feed her often and help her move when she sleeps and all those things how much of that that first year how much was did your life change in terms of how your day-to-day went I think I think we were sort of in a way blinkered by the fact that we'd, we'd not ever had children before so we had no expectations really as to what life was going to be like for us personally you know we we saw children um like friends with children and we could kind of understand you know and you always see the, the good stuff don't you so you always see the running around in the park and the playful stuff you know you don't really see the tantrums at home or no the... one's facebook living those tantrums no <laughs> <laughs> those screaming episodes yes. so you know we were probably a little bit blinkered to think you know that we would have a very relaxed you know lovely child and you know um but the first year it was we were just thrown into a whole new world and i think we knew that it was having a, a baby was going to be a disruption to our normal everyday routine um but this certainly took us into a direction that we never never thought possible but but even so in those early days when we were trying to figure out what was actually happening you know she was we were feeding her through a tube but actually because you know for your your baby you know when they're not walking and they are just you're feeding them anyway it we were just like everybody else but we were just feeding Rosie through a tube every three hours day and night (laughs) rather than you know the baby like you know trying to wean or trying to you know get them on solids or anything like that we didn't have that journey but it was such such a big you know a small part of the bigger picture I guess of having a baby Mm. um but really it was kind of like the second year I think that's when it really hit us I think um because by that point then we'd gone through the all these various different tests at first the doctors thought Rosie had uh, it was something to do with the brain so we had Rosie had loads of different MRI scans and ultrasounds and all these different things to try and eliminate, you know, or try and work out what it was. Um, and everything just kept on coming back negative. So we were just thinking, you know, 
great, you know, this is a really good sign that they can't find, you know, what they think it's this, you know, something to do with the brain and it's not. So, you know, it's really good. Um, and then, and then obviously like sort of as the journey went on, they, um, they went, they started looking at the muscles as like the secondary, you know, if it's not going to, if it's not something to do with the brain, let's have a look at the muscles. And so she had a, a muscle, um, a muscle test. I can't, uh, e, can't remember what it's called now. Um, but it, it was looking at the electrical nerves and things of the muscles. And that was the first time that something had come back abnormal. Um, and from then on, she went to have a biopsy, which she'd had done in the January of 2015, I think. So, so that was just as she was approaching her first birthday. So that was the first time that we'd had a, a biopsy. And actually, just about a month before her first birthday, that was when we got the diagnosis. So yeah. really, the kind of that first year was didn't seem it was stressful because yeah. we were in situations and hospitals and things like that that we hadn't expected. But equally, I don't know, we didn't really, we were just like everybody else then with little yeah. babies around in our arms and pushing them down the street in the, in the push chairs. And, and then as time got on, when it got into like the second and third years, and then everybody, everybody around us said like from the, the ladies who I'd met at the antenatal group who were, you know, their children were then walking and eating and running and, you know, they were going to all these different places that we just, we couldn't get to, or we just weren't confident enough to go to. We just started to withdraw a little bit and mm. just lose contact, but just, I just stepped away because I thought I don't want to prevent them from doing things that they want to do. Yeah. Like, you know, they don't need us hanging around oh. <laughs> because we can't do it or, you know, so-and-so is going for a birthday party and everyone's eating cake it was like well we'll just sit this one out <laughs> we can't mm. eat cake <laughs> so you know it's just silly things like that that I think I just created these blocks of like if we didn't feel like we could do it I would just wouldn't go because mm. I just wouldn't stop in that situation or feel like other people had to work around us and like I don't know it's really silly really but but totally understandable <laughs> so where did you where did you turn for support then if the uh, obviously, when when babies are small, often um, those groups of mums and dads who've got children the same age are, are often the first place that people turn to because they're obviously going through similar things. But where did you turn? Um, we, I think we turned inwards. <laughs> I mm. think I think we just completely. I think by that point we'd built up such a a new group of friends in the medical profession. I think. I think we just turned to them. So, you know, by, by this point, you know, sort of as we'd started to get the, the diagnosis, um, so did so did the help and the care and the the contacts of, you know, kind of people at different charities and people who could help us in that sort of way. And actually it was just we we found ourselves really you know, needing mm. needing help and advice and it was it was just being bombarded all the time, like just you know, every new thing was you just you didn't know anything yeah so it was always really hard to be like what do we do and what what should we have been doing that we haven't been doing that might affect Rosie in the future or hinder her in some way because we we just didn't know to do it and it was sort of trying to backtrack I guess as well as moving forward so I think as as we surrounded ourselves with the medical profession um and we started getting carers in and you know people to help us left right and center and so we actually just got really busy yeah <laughs> So, so we naturally, I lost contact a little bit with friends from antenatal groups, and a lot of my my friends don't live near me anyway. So all my friends kind of scattered around the country, um, and so 
it was very yeah it was very isolating and it, like we're very very lucky to have Ian's family just around the corner but my family are again scattered around the country so I don't see them as much as I would have liked um and yeah I think we just relied on <laughs> I think we relied on Ian's mum and dad yeah maybe. yeah it, I mean it sounds all-consuming uh, was there a point at which I mean I okay I'll take a step back and say that I've they they always say that children with particular needs get choose the parents that are the right parents to help them with that and you guys have just been incredible and so just just the way you've handled everything has been amazing but was there a point at which you stopped thinking just about Rosie and started looking at your own lives and thinking about this you know this doesn't feel like I thought it was going to or it doesn't it doesn't this isn't what I had in my mind of how things were going to play out and there's bits about it that are actually really challenging. Um, was was there a point at which you you kind of realised the sense of being, you know, the the circumstances feeling really challenging for you personally and for you and Ian together? There's a lot in that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think when you have a when you have a very small child, is you know, it's just your natural thing is to obviously give them everything. And when your child is 15, often, you know, normally adults also have their own, you know, a lot of their own life going on as well as their child. So there's a transition, isn't there, of, as they get older and able to do more for themselves. And also just as you kind of come out of that bubble of new baby, you know, you kind of look up and look around. And I'm just wondering kind of when that was for you and when you realise that this is our life now. Like what what you thought at that point? I think it really was. Um, I think, you know, you, you mentioned it in the book. It was it was that Christmas. It was that, that Christmas with Rosie where for the first time I think we just had just a moment by ourselves to, you know, all the health professionals, everybody who would normally would be around were off for Christmas. And we suddenly were by ourselves you know, we we were due to go to the to see my uh, my sister and be with all the family at, at Christmas, but yeah, my sister's little boy had a cold, and so as Christmas was at her house, <laughs> we just couldn't go. And I think it was the first time that we'd had that that mental space. I think to just sit down and think, what what has just happened, and like reflect on on the time with Rosie about the diagnosis, because I think you're so busy just being practical all the time and just trying to like stay with it and you know you've got medical supplies coming in and have we got that and what do we need to do today and what does Rosie need now and you know and you just on this cycle on this treadmill I think you know and I was I went back to work after um I think nine months after Rosie and stuff and and, uh, my husband in he he became full-time carer of Rosie and he gave up he had his own business and he he gave that up to to do that which I'm very grateful for um and he um, and I think we were just we were just busy. We'd moved house. I'd got a new job. <laughs> We'd got a diagnosis. It'd just been a full on year of 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 an entire life shift for us all as a family together. Um, and I think that Christmas was the first time we actually had some breathing space where we sat down and went, "Wow, like what a year, what a time." And and it was incredible because I think we for the first time talked a lot about about what had happened and about the things that we'd experienced with Rosie so 
um, you know, you, you mentioned in the book about uh, the time when she, um, you know, went into respiratory arrest and kind of died outside the hospital that time. And um, sorry, <laughs> gets me every time. <laughs> me too. Sorry. I d- uh, yeah, I just, nobody, nobody should go through that. <laughs> sorry. And then, um, you know, there's other times, like, you know, I was going to visit my mum and dad and I had a two-hour journey with Rosie. It was the first ever time I'd done it and and she started choking in the back of the car and it was the rear-facing car seat and so I, could, I couldn't see her. And then I was on the motorway and I was stuck. There was, like, roadworks going on. I couldn't get onto the hard child and I couldn't – there was nowhere to go and – I literally sort of exceeded the, the 50 mile an hour speed limit to, to get myself to the next junction where I, I literally parked up in a ditch and, and tried to get to Rosie like through the car. And it was just horrendous because she'd just gone quiet. And I just, I just imagined her being, being blue. Like I just, it had been like 10 minutes in this car with this crazy journey, just thinking she's gone. She's, I've lost her. She's gone. She knows just, and so I didn't drive for like a year. <laughs> I didn't drive. I just would not. I did not in- know that long journeys like after that and stuff so it was all these like little things these little Mm. pockets of you know it was only 10 minutes of of my life at that time but it affected a year of me like not ever wanting to take Rosie out anywhere and go to go up and do things you know with her by myself because I was just so scared um and so yeah so there's all these little things that had happened and at that Christmas time Ian and I probably for the first time just talked about it quite honestly and had you know we've we've had this crazy time and we we don't want the the next year to be the same we want to, we'll want it to be different um and so that was it it was kind of like our revelation moment i guess where we where we were honest and and we planned and we planned i think we'd had such a long time with rosie where we'd plan stuff in and then everything would just not happen because rosie was in hospital somebody was ill all this kind of stuff and so we stopped we stopped making plans we stopped living life because because we just cancelled them anyway and we lost mm. all this money from holidays that we'd never went on and you know all these things so we just stopped doing it but when we looked at the calendar we had nothing to look forward to because there was nothing in the diary and so we knew that had to change and we just thought it's worth it to to be excited about you know things coming up in the year so that we can yeah get excited about them and so what kind of things what kind of things did you put in to look forward to as a family, right? And also together and on your own or? Yeah, I think that came, I think doing things by ourselves came a bit later. Um, reading a fantastic book called Freedom Seeker. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think before, I think from that Christmas, we certainly went family orientated. Um, and then I think after about a, a year of that time, we went, we started then kind of going, we need to look after ourselves as individuals, both Ian and I because we are we're so consumed in Rosie's world and everything is about Rosie which is which is great but we're not looking after ourselves and there's things that you know we still want to achieve things ourselves personally as as well as you know looking after Rosie and hope and giving her everything that we can so absolutely yeah it was just things like yeah like getting away and holidays and just you know we weren't going to go far but just you know we don't want to I don't think we'll travel abroad with Rosie for a while yet but um you know just just little things like that and days out like what would Rosie like to do I think we'd we'd not really thought Rosie was such a unique child that we we didn't do the normal things that children would do so you know seeing your child kind of run in the park and explore things and you know you'd probably then go oh, like oh Rosie loves to do this and Rosie loves to do that and we were having to create 
the fun for her all the time and so it became our fun (laughs) whatever we wanted to do and so we decided that we were definitely going to switch it around and be more what do we think Rosie wants what rather than how how do we want to spend our weekend you know so and Rosie fits in with us and we try and make it fun for her so we try to be more about her and has that ended up being fun for you too yeah definitely yeah I think and I mean as a result it sounds really silly, but I, I started this this blog um, a while ago at a time when I was stuck in hospital with Rosie and I just felt like I needed to get stuff off my chest, but without burdening <laughs> anybody. So it was like a, a diary. I don't know. I wanted to record the journey, but also I didn't really know what I was doing. I think I just kind of went, I just need a project. I need to do something that is going to fill my time when I'm here and just take my mind off the real world. Yeah. Um, Doesn't so sound start- silly at all. Can I just <laughs> add? It makes complete sense. So you started writing. You are sorry? So you started writing then? I started writing. Um, I started writing back then when Rose was in hospital and it helped to really focus and again, it might, it might sound really silly, but having things to do with Rosie is kind of good for the blog. And I know that sounds really like like I'm saying that selfishly, but I think it makes me realise like that we're doing the right thing by it, if, if I'm making sense. So I think I've realised that there's been times when Ian and I have just been getting on with stuff like we need to go shopping at the weekend, we've got to do the food shop, we've got to do this, we've got to, you know, clean the house and, and it's boring. And I, and I get to the sort of thinking about the blog and I go, I've got nothing to share about mm. the week or what we've done or how I've how I've learned something from Rosie or anything like that because I realise how consumed I've been in my yeah. own thing. So having these things in and thinking about the blog has kind of tied it together, has helped me to explore I don't know, new new things for Rosie, I guess, and like new, you know, what can we do and what would be fun and what she'd never done before. And, you know, it's quite interesting that on her, uh, she had a, a birthday recently and we we did something and then the next day we'd, we'd done something else that was new and we posted it just on, on Facebook to our family and friends and, and day, you know, the third day passed and it was like, oh, you know, because it was the birthday week, so there's loads of stuff going on all the time. And then somebody had like texted um, like a, a message back saying, you know, oh, I'm, you know, day day three already, and look how much she's done. You know, I can't wait to see what day four is going to bring. And like Ian, in his <laughs> in his manners, was like, I see a challenge. I see this yeah. challenge. Four, five, day six. So I think um, things like that really help us to drive new experiences for Rosie that otherwise we would probably not do so much every I think, day. So. I think it's a brilliant thing to do when you're in the middle of things that you have to do. You're essentially turning it into a project which kind of it it makes it I mean you have to do it anyway. You have to get it done. You might as well do it in an enjoyable way. And if that also ends up better for Rosie, better for you, then that's that's awesome. And I think it's a really simple but brilliant thing for anyone to do, whatever their situation is, if they're feeling stuck in it, you know, if it's like your job is really boring, but you have to go because you right now you need that money to pay the rent. And, you know, there might be an alternative at some point in the future, but right now you have to keep going to that job. Then why not have a little project at work, whether it's like finding out everything you can about the people who work in HR or <laughs> what, whatever it is, like giving yourself a challenge or, you know, bringing more creativity to the way that you do your work is a brilliant one for for lots of people. So I think it's a really, really good thing. You say you say it's silly, but I think it's actually just, a, it can become a really powerful 
strategy for making what you have to do anyway at a time that you're feeling stuck into something that just you know brings more light into your life thank you yeah I think you you just do what you know and you don't know if you could have handled things differently or done anything differently you don't know what you're doing (laughs) (laughs) none of us know what we're doing don't worry about that (laughs) (laughs) you you just do what you know or feels you know what feels comfortable at the time and certainly that was uh that was for me a project I understand a project I know that it's like (laughs) you can plan a project (laughs) honestly planning is the secret weapon of the freedom seeker even if you end up chucking that plan out the window I think just the process of thinking something through opens your eyes you know and it's interesting you said it it gives you something to look forward to which is really important as well even if that ends up getting changed you know it doesn't happen on the day in the way that you thought it would and still having that thing to look forward to is really really important so what have you learned about your husband in the process of this oh god that he's amazing and incredible he's changed so much completely i mean he's I think it was really tough in the in the kind of the early days when Rosie didn't communicate very well and you know we were trying to teach her Makaton and, and stuff like that to to help understand what she needed and everything um, and certainly since her her speech um, is very difficult to understand because she's she's got like a, the muscle weakness affects her ability to smile and talk and she can't close her mouth um, so she. You know, the sounds like the M's and the P's and the B's and things that you'd need to, to shut your lips to, to make that sound. She's not able to do. So it's quite, I think we, we understand her now. Um, but certainly when we were around new people, you I realised just how little she, she's understood by other people. Um, and so I think that now she's talking, I mean, Ian's in his, is it element now? I mean, like he's, I think this, having this little challenge like and actually he's gone on to this challenge now so less less of me and more of Ian <laughs> like what can I do for Rosie every day to, to do something new and so um and he's I think just his oh I don't know he's just amazing he's I don't I don't think words can describe like how the the love for a man <laughs> when, you know when I first met Ian was just you know he he was my perfect man and we were just you know really happy together we loved each other's company and you know he's just you know my my best friend you know uh, and everything and so but seeing him with Rosie just has elevated it to a world and I'm sure everybody thinks like that probably with their with their husbands and you know when they see them with their kids and everything it just fills you with pride and like I don't know, Rosie certainly gets more attention than I do these days. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm happy with that. That's okay. <laughs> but yeah, it just absolutely melts my heart when I see it together. She's such a daddy's girl. I mean, you know, they and you know, I, I work full time, so Ian's really with her twenty four seven and she, I mean they they're just a little oh, they just cause mayhem and havoc wherever they go. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just fun. They're fun and they just understand each other and it's just it's amazing it's amazing to see he's their an incredible bond man. he's a very talented and creative man and uh, yeah he's incredible uh, yeah I mean I know he is incredibly talented in music in carpentry and all sorts of things and has really put all of his those things aside for a while but I love the way that he's brought his creativity to how he spends his day with Rosie as well it's amazing and what do you think is the greatest gift that you've received from Rosie 
Oh God, that's a tough one. I think she, I think she's taught me the meaning of life, <laughs> like really, truly. I mean, I look back at the time before Rosie and just think how self-absorbed I was and how, you know, I spent, I spent a lot of time just, it was all about work and career and, and money and house and quite materialistic, really. Um, and I think having Rosie certainly made me understand more about bringing more fun into into my life about I don't know what well, I think sometimes what it truly means to live and I think having seeing somebody who is unable to smile struggling to talk and communicate needs help with absolutely everything so she Rosie's unable to walk um she's unable to move herself um you know she's unable to sit unsupported um we have to get up through the night to physically turn her over in bed because she she can't roll and turn herself in bed and I think watching watching her vulnerability but also seeing how much she knows no different you know so in her in her eyes she's just a normal she looks at other people going why can't I do that but she never seems to it never seems to phase her she just finds her own things that she enjoys and gets on with that but I think for me I think I realized you know, like I can I can walk and I can communicate and I can I can do all these things which I've just always you know I can eat and taste and you know drink and and you know enjoy life in a way that she will never be able to um and I think it it's made me i think appreciate what i am able to do and has pushed me to be like i i don't know just do crazy things <laughs> like like signing up to trek kilimanjaro <laughs> which is just crazy but also it you know I can do it you know well I'm gonna try <laughs> I'm gonna try and do it and I think it's helped me to just look at life and be like life is for living and uh, I just need to get out there and explore and you know friendships I'd lost so much friendship I think over various different experiences and time and I don't put all, an awful lot into my friendships I've got friends who have just always been there and so that's just the way that I am as a friend to these people and stuff but I'm beginning to understand that I can be a better friend. Um, I just need to work out how I do that in a natural way and not try and force a friendship. But certainly I think some of the connections I can have, I could have a deeper connection with some friends, but, um, but it's just, she's just given me a new, a new lease of life and you, she's just, everything is about, you know, I think you touched on it before about just using creativity to, you know, she might not be able to do something, but we'll find a way. We don't, you know, like for a third birthday, we, we were taking a roller skating and, you know, if you, I could see a few people going like, what? Have <laughs> 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 you thought this one through? But, you know, we, we got her these roller skates and we sat her in a special, you know, um, wheelchair and we put the wheels <laughs> on her on her feet. And she was roller roller skating and she loved it. And she's been roller roller skating ever since. And it's just incredible. And so it's things like that that I just think we should never say she can't do it or never say, you know, she's, you know, there's stuff that naturally she's going to be able to, she will struggle with, but we'll, we will try and find a way 
we'll do our best and you know that's all you can do isn't it that's all you can do it's absolutely amazing well rosie chose well in you and in (laughs) (laughs) um it did and the way you guys live your lives is just is so inspiring and i wish you so much happiness as she tries out all her new things and keeps on inspiring you and i look forward to seeing that flag posted at the top of Kilimanjaro in not too many months time Lisa you're amazing thank you so much for sharing your story today thank you very much thank you well that's it for this time you've been listening to me Beth Kempton in conversation with Lisa Moncrief you can read more about Lisa's journey on her blog myweekmuscles.com I hope you'll take what you've heard and use it to inspire your own journey of freedom seeking I'd love to know what resonated with you and what bold moves you're making as a result so please share on social media. I'm at Beth Kempton on Instagram or at Do What You Love XX everywhere else. And be sure to check out my website, bethkempton.com, for more tools and resources to support your adventures. If you haven't yet read my book, the full title is Freedom Seeker Live More, Worry Less, Do What You Love. And it's published by Hay House. Treat yourself to a copy today. It might just change your life. So until next time, fly free, my friend. Fly free.